how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome back to the show. In this episode, I sat down with actor Stephen Tobalski. He's known for Groundhog Day, Seinfeld, Mad About You, The Practice, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Deadwood, Californication, Glee, Silicon Valley, The Goldbergs. The list goes on and on as he's been in nearly 300 films and shows. Most recently, he stars in this movie called Love Virtually as Dr. Divine. The film follows four couples as they attempt to find true love in a virtual world by going to absurd extremes in a world where the metaverse is commonly used. The movie also stars former SNL alum Sherry O'Terry. In this interview, we talk about a little bit of everything, including how he met Robert De Niro's first day in LA, getting past teachers who tried to limit you, how long Bill was actually trapped in Groundhog Day, conversations with Harold Ramis, his audition for Silicon Valley, his character's desire on the Goldbergs, and much more. Here's my conversation now with Steven Tabowski. It was my uh, 12th birthday, and I had just done uh, The Ghost of Hoot and Holler, and we had our good show present, uh, a party afterwards on somebody's lawn in Oak Cliff, Texas, and I got sick that night. I got super sick. I began bleeding internally, and I was sick for the next three years. Wow. I was losing weight. My parents thought I had cancer. They thought I was going to die. I went to doctors all over the place in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I couldn't play anymore because I wanted to be an athlete like everybody in Texas. I couldn't play. So I, I was in study halls all day. And then my regular classes couldn't go to gym. Thank God. You know, that was the age where you had to start showering with the other boys, and I did not like that at all. So I'm in study hall most of the day in junior high school, and I thought, I'll read some books in here because that's what they had. And they had a bunch of books of Shakespeare, which I'd never read. And I remember my mom always used to quote King Lear. How, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. My mom knew that one by heart. And so I thought, well, I will try to read King Lear. So here I am as a kid, and I'm trying to read King Lear. I don't understand a single word of it. And then I come to one line is, I think it's Albany in that, who says, who is it that can say this is the worst? And I understood that line. I knew that. So I began reading plays. That's all I could do was read plays. And by the time I got to high school, I still, I still couldn't play, but I could try out for plays and I could be in debate. So I started doing that. And then I turned out to be a good high school actor. Now, when you're a high school actor and you're a good high school actor, they always have the head of the troubadours and the head of the football team playing the young leading man and woman. But if you're kind of a good actor in high school, you play the old men. Yes, 
and you know, so you play it like Walter Brennan. You you, you do sort of like this, and uh, being as uh, they always would give me the weird parts to essay, and we did a one act version of Trojan Women, and it went to the state competition, and I was awarded best actor in the state of Texas for doing Talthibius, the Greek soldier with a heart, and Poseidon, Lord of the Deep. So at this time, I felt like I was destined to be an actor. So at SMU, I said, well, this is what I'm going to do. And I ran into difficulties at SMU and that I had a teacher who was trying to destroy me. You know, one of those teachers that have it out for you. I don't know why she did. I think for my audition, I did a, a, a Shakespeare speech and did it as a striptease. I think that was it. And all the, the audiences, the teachers were laughing. The head of the department was laughing so hard, they had to carry him out on a stretcher. But she did not like it. And so she was destined to destroy me. So she made sure I never got cast in any plays in college. So instead of quitting, I went to the local equity theater, got my equity card, and started acting in Dallas. And I became the matinee, one of the matinee idols of Dallas. And she really hated that. And when I did my first Broadway play, she came backstage to see me. And she said, you're still no good. And I said to her, yeah, and you just paid $120 to see me. Wow. That was kind of my journey was a series of catastrophes that led me to the next uh, rock in the fast flowing stream of, of the disasters of life that got me to being a professional actor. At what point in the early days did you start to lean into comedy? Like, was it always comedy? Like, how did that uh, kind of come to be? Yeah, I always had a bent for comedy. And and so I thought, and as I, here's another bit of a story. So um, when I was my junior year, I was playing Arpagon this junior year of high school. So I was playing the 80-year-old Arpegon in a one-act version of Moliere's The Miser. And our teacher was uh, Mary Curtis, and she was very, uh, she really thought outside the box. So rather than directing this play, she went outside the rules and got a local actor, David Nichols, to come in and coach us on how to do comedy. And so David Nichols came in and taught me as Arpegon. He says, comedy is not frantic. It's not this. Comedy is specific. You know, it is specific speech. It's specific ideas. You got to be clear. You got you to hit it with energy and then stop. It's all about the stop. It's all about making your point. And so anyway, we went all the way to state with, with that play too. I did not win Best Actor, but I did win uh, Honorable Mention. I met David Nichols four times in my life. Mm -hmm. This time when he directed me in high school. The second time I met David Nichols was my first day in Los Angeles. 
uh, he was now working in Los Angeles in the art department. He said, want to come on to the movie set that I'm working on and have lunch with me. So that day, I had lunch, my first day in Los Angeles, with David Nichols, Robert De Niro, Liza Minnelli, and Martin Scorsese. New York, New York. And so, and De Niro, we're having lunch, the five of us at the table, and De Niro kept looking at me like, what's this guy doing here? You know, what's this guy doing here? You know, that was the second time. Third time I saw David Nichols was the day I got married in Memphis, Tennessee, doing Great Balls of Fire, and he had been brought on to be in the art department. And the fourth time I met him was the first day of Groundhog Day. <laughs> and David was in the art department. They had 500 people of the town were watching. Bill and I were going to, first day, right out of the shoot, we're going to do the Ned Ryerson, you know, yes. Bill Murray scene. And I look in the crowd, and there is David Nichols. And he gives me the sign. And I go like, everything's going to be okay. So that's kind of when I went into comedy was due to David Nichols and his instruction. Besides, I always liked comedy. I always, I always thought it was just fabulous. You know, I dug it. Is the Ned Ryerson role probably what most people recognize you as? You've been in like 300 credits almost, but is that still the most prevalent probably? Probably. People come up to me in the grocery store every time I'm there and they go, bing, has anyone ever done that to you? And I go like, mm, yeah, about three people today. Uh, I'm in France and uh, in the forest of Southern France. And someone goes, Ned, is Ned, you know, all over the world, people know Ned Ryerson and they always go bing. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's a weight I carry, you, yeah. you know, but, but it's so good to be known for a film that was so brilliant. You know, it's, it's it really holds up. It's magnificent. I write for uh, Creative Screenwriting as well. We're doing a piece on how Harold Ramis uses theme. Do you have anything you'd want to add to like the theme of Groundhog Day? Absolutely. Uh, I talked to Harold Ramis because it was the subject of controversy as to how long Bill was trapped in the town. And Harold Ramis looked at me and said, 10,000 years. He says, I'm a practicing Buddhist. Who knew? And he says, as a Buddhist, we believe it takes 10,000 years to perfect a human soul. And that is the real story of Groundhog Day, the perfection of the human soul. So I think Harold Ramis's religious feelings and ideas and philosophy fed into everything he did. And also the way he treated people on the set. He was amazing, amazing, kind, magnificent, giving, giving man. And very funny. That's, that's amazing. I hadn't heard that. What do you prefer between film, television, Broadway? Do you lean towards one? Is it the variety of all three or something else? Well, I, I guess I would have to say I'm a creature of the stage, that there's nothing like doing a play. And there's nothing like doing a play that's a success on Broadway. And the reason is, we did Mornings at 7. We got more Tony nominations than any play in history, any straight play in history. We lost them all, but we got nominated. And when you do a successful play in New York, you see everyone you've ever known in your entire life. 
that that people from grade school come to see you, uh, people who taught you in graduate school, they make the trip and they meet you outside. Uh, uh, Carol King, I met Carol, Anne Margaret, I met Anne Margaret. It, you know, all these people that you love, you you meet them backstage. Uh, I, I find the art of film is can be amazing. It could be amazing like in Groundhog Day, and it could also be a weight around your neck if if it's in the hands of somebody who isn't as into improvisation as Harold Ramis was. Mm. You know, it it film is about creating the spontaneous moment. This this goes with comedy and this goes with the greatness of film. And that is like working with Ridley Scott uh, in like Film and Louise. Ridley Scott is one of these directors, Alan Parker too. Ridley Scott, Alan Parker, of course, Harold Ramis. The, you know, I'm only thinking of these, the greatest directors that we've had. Ridley Scott tries to make sure that he captures surprise, hmm. which of course is the essence of comedy. But he also, I know in his heart of hearts, he believes that surprise is what makes a film come to life. And, and so he sets up things to where you, on film, you're, you're going to encounter something you didn't encounter before, and you're going to have to just reach into space for it, and hopefully it's going to be good. And we did that on Thelma and Louise all the time. He's all the time setting up surprises. And you're like, whoa, because capturing, the thing about film is it could end up dead. Hmm. You can over-rehearse it. You can overthink it, overlook it. But if you can capture that moment of surprise, then you have something that's magical, which is what, like in Groundhog Day, the scene where Bill Murray hugs me, like, hey, Ned, how are you doing? You doing anything this after? That scene was the one scene we improvised. I had no idea any of that was going to happen. And the reason is in Groundhog Day, there was very little improvisation because each day had to be the same day. So when I go, oh, Phil, Phil, I had to step in exactly the same spot on the street, turn at exactly the same time, do my finger exactly the same and run up to him because it's the same day repeated. The weather had to be the same. So Bill and I shot our street scenes over and over again in different weather conditions. So Harold Ramis could pick what the weather of the repeated day would be because it had to always be the same. And he picked the cloudy day and when as the day that is repeated and when snow starts to fall as when time starts again because we were shooting outside chicago we had everything so bill and i shot in snowstorms in sun and whatever and there's only one scene in groundhog day that doesn't fit that template and that's because <laughs> we only had the groundhog for two hours mm. And so when, when, we ha when Bill steals the groundhog, the sun came out. So it's the only time that there's sun in Groundhog Day. But when we did that scene where Bill hugs me and all that stuff, Harold Ramis, I guess, maybe knew what was going to happen because he had already set up cameras. He already, 
you know, John Bailey already had his camera set up. And so I come to knock on the door or whatever. And then Bill came out and did all that stuff. And then I ran away because, you know, like with Alan Parker, you keep going until they say cut. So nobody said cut. So I, so I ran away and Al Ramos goes cut. And I go, oh my God. And, and I, I said, what, do we have to shoot some more? He says, no, no, I think we got it all. <laughs> I think we got it. So capturing surprise is an essence about film that I love and being able to create, maintain surprise in theater is the art of it because you have to rehearse so much. Like on Broadway, you get 10 weeks of rehearsal. So it's very easy to have a canned performance uh, on Broadway. You know, where you just do the same thing every day, every night, you're used to it. It's hard to have that opening to where you are still alive in the moment, which Stanislavski would say is all of what theater is about. How do you think about some of your characters in television? Like Silicon Valley, I loved your performance in that, um, where you are kind of, there's there's usually slow character growth, if any, in, in a show like that. What was, what was your experience like with that? Well, Mike Judge, uh, you, you know, the people on Silicon Valley were, again, just geniuses. They, it was just a brilliant show. And I remember my, my audition for that. I had auditioned for Silicon Valley months before, months before. And I didn't, like, in July or June or July or something, I didn't hear anything from it. So as an actor, you feel like, oh, you're dead. You know, you, you didn't, no callback. Then I was in Arkansas working on something and my agent and manager called together, which is always like a sign. And they said, what are you doing tomorrow? They want to see you on Silicon Valley again. I'm going, huh? I, I don't remember. That was months ago. And I said, I'm in Arkansas now. He says, well, get back here and, and, and do this because if you get the part, you have to start the next day. And I've gone like, beep, 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 beep. I, don't, I don't even know what we're doing now. So I remember I, I flew back. I tried to remember the scene that I had learned months before, which I probably vaguely knew. And so um, you're sitting in a room at Sony and all the executive producers are sitting behind the table looking at you. Your chair is at the front of the room. And then they have the camera here. The girl with the camera is between the two of you. And so I just said, so what are you guys looking for? And Mike Judge says, we're looking for someone who could take over the room. And, you know, you just hear someone who could take over the room. And I said, oh, okay. So, so you want me just to do the scene sitting here? And they go, yeah. And then I said to the girl filming, I said, and how are you filming me? Let me see it. Let me see how you're filming me. So I go, you sit on the chair for a second. Let me see. I, I said, well, this, you're kind of cutting my head off a little bit. If you do this, you need a little more headspace. I'm taller than you. I mean, are you sure you have, okay, let me sit here. I'm going to do the first line. We'll just record this now and let me see how that looks. And so I went and looked at it. I go, I don't know about this. Listen, look, here, I think maybe a better place to do this scene is if I'm in motion instead of sitting on the chair because I'm ordering the guys around. Why don't we do this in the hallway? Okay, grab your camera. Let's go. And so we left the room. I left all the executives there. 
And we went all the way down into the parking lot with her filming me while I'm talking, doing the scene. I went out to my car and I drove home. <laughs> and then I, I heard the word that Mike, Mike called and was saying like, well, we were all laughing after you left the room. So you did take over the room. So can you start tomorrow? And I go, yeah, what am I doing? And fortunately, what they did is they realigned the schedule and they shot four episodes of just my scenes the next week. So I had a week to kind of study and catch up on that. But again, you're working with those people. My God, what a cast. What a cast and what a premise. Uh, you know, to me, for people who haven't seen Silicon Valley, it's not just a show about computer geeks and computer people. It's, it's about this character, Richard, who in a way discovers fire. Hmm. He discovers the invention that will change everything. And it is about how creating that thing changes the guys, the computer guys who created it, and how all the other people are trying to steal it from them. It was magnificent. And great writers, great cast, everything was terrific about it. And here's a special thing. I just thought of this. Uh, our, one of our producers was Jim Kesselwise. Jim Kesselwise was the AD on his first job on Groundhog Day. And his job was to kneel in the street for when I'm walking up as Ned Ryerson. Remember, I had to always hit the same brick on the street. And his job was to go off camera, like pointing at me like, now. And I go, Phil, Phil. That was his job. And now he was my boss. He was a producer on Silicon Valley. Help. Always be nice to everybody on the set. Always. Was the key to that and that audition sounds maybe different than most? Is it just to never wink? Is that kind of how you see it? I mean, how do you think about some of that? I think I think you have to know what the part is about. Mm -hmm. And and not in terms of affectation, but the heart and soul in the bottom of a part. And I've always found, like I said before, you got to make sure a part has two names. You have to make sure that the writer has thought of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But if you can describe what it is that your character wants in a sentence, then if you could describe his wants or needs in a sentence, then you understand this part enough. If you have to talk for hours and hours and hours about it, you need to think about it some more. It has to be simple. Like on, on Silicon Valley, I, I mean on the Goldbergs. Let's take the Goldbergs. Mm -hmm. On the Goldbergs, I needed to create order in an orderless, in an orderless universe. And so any element that created orderlessness was part of my problem. And any way, <clears throat> it all connects then. And, and so you know the, the spine of your part. Hmm. And, and that's what you need to know, I think, when you work on a script. Do you have any advice for screenwriters creating comedic roles like creating <sighs> roles that actors actually want to play any any advice around that yeah i th I, th I think i was thinking about this um 
just because of working on, you know, love virtually and, and what that show has been, which I love, I, I ended up just absolutely loving, uh, what they did with that. Uh, just such a wonderful movie. What I would say is this, what I have found most successful in writing is the idea of there is always a difference between the inside man and the outside man, who we are and what we portray to the world. That's always a template for comedy. Now, a lot of times you have the schlemiel schlamazel interaction, Ned Ryerson versus Bill Murray. You, you know, you, you have that where you have, where Harold Ramis would say in any comedic scene, you have to have the world and you have to have the aberrant force in the world. Hmm. So Bill in the scenes with me had to be the world. So he had to play it straight. Whereas me, uh, Harold Ramis said, Stephen, you can do whatever you want to do because you're the aberrant force in the world. But the thing that made Bill so special was he was able to go to the next scene with Andy McDowell where Andy had to be the world. And Bill is in the cafeteria, I mean the diner, and he's the aberrant force in the world. So I think writers look for the characters who portray the world and, and they could switch. They could go back and forth. And then you have a character that is not in the world. And that's why, like in Love Virtually, the thing that's so cool about that is you have, let's say, Cherry O'Terry and I, we're, we're like counselors, we're therapists, marriage therapists or whatever. So you, you would assume from that that we are the world and we're helping people that are outside the world that have problems in their life so we have to kind of play it straight when we're being therapists but in our personal lives we're going online to not be ourselves so finding in the writing where you find when you are the world and when you are the aberrant force in the world that's what's important for writers and that's what's important for actors to find when they're working on something you take a look, I'll just bring it up. Yeah. You know, it comes from Shakespeare. Yeah. Like, take Hamlet. How is Hamlet when he's in the court? He's the world. How is he when he leaves and talks to us, oh, that this too, too solid flesh should melt on, resolve itself into a dew? His monologue is when he is not the world. And he's talking to us personally. And then we could see the difference between Hamlet as the figurehead of the prince and then Hamlet, the man. And then you see how they play off of each other. That's always an important thing in writing is to find the inner man and the outer man. It seems to be like recently with shows like The Office, the behavioral comedy, what he says he does and what he actually does is actually what makes it funny. Is that kind of how you see most of the roles you're portraying? <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you something I found out about The Office. Uh, the Office follows the template of uh, Renaissance Italian comedy. If you look at the characters in, in, in those comedies, each one of those characters is represented by someone in The Office, and I mean almost to the letter, like you take Jim. Mm -hmm. Jim is a... Is a Perfect template for Harlequin, for the Harlequin. 
uh, somebody who is a trickster. He always plays tricks on people. He's handsome. He always pursues the prettiest girl. And uh, he always needs money. He never has money. That's Harlequin. Uh, you have Michael in there as uh, he represents several of the comedic characters. But uh, Doctore, in the, in the beginning of the office, Doctore is the guy who presumes, who tries to show you how smart he is and how with it he is and how everything he is, but he's really a buffoon. So that was Michael so much at the beginning of the show. Uh, and and uh, Pam is uh, a perfect, like, Colin Bean. Uh, th she is th the woman with the heart of gold who uh, also kind of looks at the audience and tells jokes, can you believe this is where I'm at? You know, that's Pam. So, so you could look at The Office and goes, whoever wrote The Office knew about Italian comedy. You seem to really study comedy. What are you watching today? What do you like? What do you actually find really funny today? Nate Barbetti? Borgazzi? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've yeah. been watching him and I'm going like, <clears throat> you know, here's here's a guy and he's he is doing just not no punchline humor. He relies upon he relies upon your knowledge of the world, like your knowledge of fights with your wife. Mm -hmm. You know, he'll just talk about the fight with his wife that he had over uh, one fell swoop. Yeah. The, the use of the word one fell swoop was incorrect. And, you know, he says, this is not a, you know, young people, they'll look at this and like, this is crazy. You know, why do you have a fight about? He says, this is a fight you have when you've been married for years and years. And I'm laughing at that because I've been married for 34 years now. And I'm laughing like crazy because I'm going like, that's exactly the kind of fight my wife and I have. We no longer are having the fight about money or who does the dishes or who picks up the clothes. Those fights were done years ago. Now we have fights about the most ridiculous things. And, and so he's observant. Uh, Nate Barkatsi is observant enough to where he picks up on these things or playing golf where your wife doesn't come back with the golf cart and you have to play with the driver. I had to do that. You know, Annie, my wife, had to go to the bath. We went to play golf. She's on the course. So she had to go to the bathroom and I'm stuck. I'm stuck with a three wood <laughs> and I had to play a couple holes with just the three wood. And, and, you know, so I just am laughing, uh, he, going to Aristotle <clears throat> and Aristotle's poetics, he talks about comedy and he says, a lot of times when we hear something we recognize is true, there is a laughter of recognition. It isn't really that it's funny. We just laugh because we've heard it before. And that's why he's saying in terms of comic structure or story structure, you have act one, the three act structure. You have act one, which is the introduction, act two, which is rising action, 
Act three, which is the conclusion, which ties off the rising action. And he said, to make a story successful, you have to connect act three with act one. Hmm. And that template still exists today. So uh, in terms of comedy, Nate Bargatze is uh, hilarious to me, uh, just the, the simpleness of it. In terms of story structure, I was amazed. It's not funny, but better call Saul. Mm. I was amazed at how they keep that ball going. Mm. Because when you do those kind of shows, as a writer and as a producer, when you're successful, you have to keep the ball in the air somehow. And you have to keep changing your act one when you put in your new act one. So a lot of times I find what's essential is where you find your new act one in a script. Uh, so that that's kind of, and, and in terms of, of other things, I really have not been seeing a lot lately because I was working a lot in the pandemic and working out of town. So I, I really didn't have the luxury of just my Netflix. You know, I, I didn't I, I didn't have anything there. So again, the pandemic created a situation where everybody was working outside of California because the COVID restrictions were so onerous here and expensive. So I was working in New Mexico. I was working in Utah. I was working in Oregon. All these places where, I mean, I was working on a show in Utah and the uh, COVID monitor came up to me and put his fingers on my forehead and goes, yeah, you're good to go. That was it. <laughs> right. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. And if it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.